0: You are listening to the Sermon Audio from 12th Street Baptist Church in Rainbow City, Alabama. More information about our church can be found online at www.12th.co. I don't think I've ever walked up to preach to uh, Aerosmith before. (laughs) Sheila, I used to to speak at the uh, children's, the elementary chapel all the time over at Westbrook when my kids were that age. And there was one time, I don't know if you remember this, the children's choir opened up with Don't Stop Believing" by Journey. It was was strangely inspirational. I'm not sure what the point was, but it was really inspirational. Uh, If we haven't met yet, my name is Dave Bolin, and uh, for the last several months we've been attending here and we have recently joined. And I can't begin to tell you uh, what this fellowship has meant to us over these last six to nine months, um, you guys have loved us, opened up your uh, hearts to us, and we are just so grateful to be here. And for the opportunity to bring the word today uh, is an honor. I had some great advice from uh, Tommy Puckett earlier. He said, Dave, just get up there let it rip, and anything you mess up, Thomas will fix later. <laughs> and uh, I'm going I'm to really lean into that today. And... Uh, We'll we'll see what happens. Uh, last week we started back into our uh, walk through Ephesians, and uh, we did uh, the uh, nine through sixteen, I believe, last week. So we'll pick up at seventeen, Ephesians four seventeen. If you want to turn your in your Bibles, we'll start there. Um, I'll meet you there. Let's let's just in the way of a little review. Uh, let's walk back through where we are. Paul is under house arrest in Rome, uh, but he is the busiest prisoner in the empire. In Ephesians 3.8, he says this, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, his grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And that is what he did. Out on the road during the missionary journeys and now in a home that he is paying for out of his own pocket, but with Roman guards there stationed 24 hours a day, the Gospel continues to go out. In addition to the soldiers that were stationed there, people from all over Rome are coming in and out, getting words of encouragement, hearing the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ and having their hearts changed. In addition to the guards and those that are coming in and out, some of his old partners in the Gospel Are making their way to Rome as well now Luke and Aristarchus have followed him from Jerusalem where he was originally arrested all the way to Rome and they made the journey with him in addition to that the rest of his team starts showing up one two at a time Timothy has made his way back to Paul by this time Epaphras the man who was from Colossae but was in Ephesus when Paul came through and was preaching the gospel and he took that gospel back to the Colossians in a small church formed, he's made his way to Rome as well. And he's given Paul a report on how things are going back in his small town. Uh, In addition, John Mark and Tickus are there too. And you can't begin to describe the encouragement that that is to Paul. All Paul wants to do is be on the road. All Paul wants to do is to be sharing the gospel at the next place, at the next place. And what initially feels a bit like a hindrance to him begins to open up as his disciples begin to converge on Rome to be with him. In Acts 28, as he is heading into Rome, just outside, some of the believers from in Rome have come and met him on the road And it says in Acts 28 that he took great courage from that. He knows that the work is not done just because he is confined to a particular place for a particular time. And at the end of Acts 28, it says, for two whole years, Paul would be in this house watching the gospel go out in every direction from there a runaway slave named Onesimus has shown up as well and finds true freedom in Christ. As Paul is getting reports from the different churches, he begins to dictate letters to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Colossae, and he drafts a letter to Philemon, the slave Onesimus's owner, asking that Philemon might take him back as a brother in Christ. Tychicus was handed the three letters, put in his satchel to head out to deliver these to the three locations. Can you imagine having three books of the Bible in your satchel and having to make the journey back from Rome through Asia to drop those off? Does he have any idea the gravity of what he's holding as he makes that journey? It's amazing. I wish we had time to spend to just talk about how precious each of these men were to Paul and what they meant to him and what God did to bring them all together into one place in one time like that. But that's for another day. Take his heads to Ephesus to deliver this letter that we have been digging into right here. Ephesus is one of the five largest cities in the world at that time. It's a modern city. It's a port city where fortunes could be made. It was a hub of the Roman Empire where power brokers wielded their strength on a daily basis. There were large temples to every god. The temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The entire city was a monument to what man can do. Now imagine for a minute, you are one of those small house churches in that city. How daunting is that task of taking the gospel to a city like that? Josh, you have a group that meets in your home, correct? How many are in your group? 10, 12. Imagine that it was your sole job to reach Etowah County with the gospel. Just your small group. It's a pretty daunting task. Now let's take that small group and sit them in the fifth largest city in the world today, Mexico City. 21 million people. How much bigger is that task? They have to feel absolutely overwhelmed. And Paul knows this, so he repends he the letter with that in mind. And he wants to send them just a few words of encouragement and challenge to maybe take some of that pressure off of them. In chapter 1, he tells them that Christ is lavishing His grace on His people, filling all things with the knowledge of the goodness and the power and the reign of Christ. He's restoring and uniting, and the church gets to play a part in that. In chapter 2, he tells them that though they were dead in their sin, but God, being rich in mercy, made them alive in Christ. He reminds them that they're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens in the household of God, with Christ as their cornerstone. In chapter 3, the mystery of the gospel is revealed, That God is building His body of believers from every tribe and every tongue. That it's not just the Jews, but the Gentiles also get a seat at the table now. That they might be partakers in the promise of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 4, because of that, in 4.1 he says that we are called to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Worthy of the high calling. And for 12th Street today, all the promises and challenges that are laid out in the Ephesian church in this letter are our encouragements and our challenges today. We get the opportunity through Christ Jesus to walk in a manner worthy of the high calling Of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ in a city, in a county that increasingly has turned its back on Jesus. That's daunting. And you guys have been through an awful lot in this past year, and there's not as many of us here as there was, which can make that task feel all that more daunting. What does it mean for us today to walk in a manner worthy of that high calling? We'll pick up in verse 17 right there where Paul is finally getting back around to what he started in Ephesians 4.1. In Ephesians 4.1 he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then he breaks off and he begins to talk about what he has done, what Jesus has done for us to equip us for that calling. And Thomas went through that last week talking about the gifts we've been given as a church. We've been given prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers who would lead the saints, that's you and me, to walk in that worthy manner that we might be equipped to do the work of the ministry pointing others to the reign of Christ, that they may have that gift and privilege as well. And that brings us back to our passage today as Paul circles back to what it means to walk like that. And he's going to, in these few verses here, 17 through 24, he's going to break down two contrasts, the futility of the old life and the calling of the new life. Let's talk about the futility of the old life first. Ephesians four seventeen through 19 We'll read the whole section first and then we'll break it down a little bit. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous, And have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. When I was in seminary in New Orleans, my wife Robin worked as a nurse in the hospital. And we were sitting on a Saturday night saying, You know, and she told me, she said, I've got a, a patient that is on my floor that's dying of AIDS. Sunday is usually when all the family members come and visit, and he's never had anybody that has been there. Maybe you could come, and maybe y'all could just talk a little bit. Maybe you could bring a newspaper, and you could just read the paper to him. And I said, fine. So I, after church, went by, picked up a copy of the Sunday Times-Picayune, and headed over to the hospital. And I read the paper cover to cover for him. And he loved all the news of the city and everything that was going on. And I read it all the way through the advertisements and store brochures and everything, and then sat it down. And he says, Dave, tell me about yourself. And I told him that I was a a seminary student. And he began to well up, and he began to cry. And he said, you know, I was a seminary student one time. And I said, really? Tell me about that. He was saved at a pretty young age and he came to seminary hoping to change the city. But he said something that broke my heart. He said, but there were just some things in my life that I did not want to let go of. He said, I enjoyed my friends in the city. I enjoyed going out and doing the things that they did. He said, and the drinking led to drugs, and the drugs led to women. And my life slowly began just to fall apart around me. And I was ultimately diagnosed with AIDS. And he said, I, I don't know how I got here. Paul knows how he got there. Paul reminds us that the believer cannot walk in a manner worthy of the Gospel with one foot planted back in this world. It does not work like that. The readers were Gentile converts and they were brought up in this pagan way of life in this massive city. And Paul tells them, if you are going to walk in a manner worthy of the Gospel, that life has to be abandoned. Completely. Paul reminds them that everything the world pursues in their city is futile. And then he maps out a process there in 17 through 19 of how that futility works on a man and a woman's life. Let's walk through those verses just one, two at a time and see that process. Back in 17, he says, Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. The futility of their mind is this spiritual fog that blocks out the light and the life of God. And as I say that, you know you've got friends that are in that fog right now. You've shared the Gospel, but the whole idea of of a God that loves them and will receive them as they are, is something they can't even comprehend. There's a fog over them. Romans 1.21 talks about that fog and what it does to a person. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. Same phrase right there. And their foolish hearts were darkened. when we're in the middle of that fog that holds out the light and the life of God, the heart begins to grow dim. And that's the very next verse. Look at verse 18 right there. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. So, the futility of their thinking, the fog that sits in there, dims the light of God in their life. And as it gets darker, cut off from the life of God, their hearts begin to harden. And in the language of the Bible, the word there is the same word we get petrified from. Their hearts become like stone. What does that do to a man and a woman? whose hearts begin to harden in that manner. Romans 2.15 says this, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. Man knows right from wrong. God's written it on their heart. You don't have to tell a man or a woman, don't murder, don't lie. They know that. It's written on their hearts. But as our hearts begin to harden as we become more and more alienated from the light and the life of God, the conscience can't do its work anymore. They don't begin to feel anything. So what's the result of that? Let me read 18 and 19 together. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. You see where it's going. The fog of the futility of the mind leads them to a darkened place where their hearts cannot feel. The conscience does not work. And when the conscience doesn't work and you don't feel Anything you begin to search for, feeling everywhere. You know, anybody like that? I had a young man that lived with us for years, made it all the way through graduation, and it was obvious that through all the hurts all the decisions that he had made and that others had made for him, his heart was increasingly hard. And he couldn't feel anything. I remember sitting around the kitchen table laughing at things and he being a half step behind in laughing because he really wasn't feeling the joy we were feeling. He just knew it was time to laugh so he picked it up and did it too. A few years after he graduated, he called me and said, uh, Pop, I, uh, I'm in the brig. He had, he had joined the military and had been arrested. And I said, buddy, why, why were you arrested? He said, well, I was going to start dealing drugs in my, um, in my town because I wanted a little extra money. He says, but then when I bought the drugs, I tried the drugs. He said, and I fell in love with ecstasy. And I said, what do you mean you fell in love with ecstasy? He said, I took it, and for the first time in my life, I felt something. You don't have to go too far in this world to find people that are reaching out for anything and everything that might let them feel something in their hearts. You can probably find that where you work. You can probably find that among your neighbors. But something happens to a heart that sits in the futility of In the fog. And the light begins to go dim and the heart begins to harden. They begin to reach for things that they hope will satisfy them maybe for just a minute. Jeremiah 2.13 says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Can you see the contrast there? On one side we've got a God who is a fountain of living water and He wants to pour into you and give you life and hope and joy and peace in everything that your heart searches for. But so many of our friends and neighbors have walked away from that and looking for something to pour their life into have dug holes for themselves and maybe that is a hole. That is their career. Maybe it's a hole of a relationship with another person. Maybe it is amassing wealth. Maybe it is being famous. And they're pouring their lives into these holes and the Bible says that these holes are cracked and their life flows right out through the bottom of it. Rejecting the living water that never, ever stops flowing. They've dug cisterns that cannot hold the life that they are so desperately seeking after. The Puritan preacher Thomas Brooks said this, that God did not cast man out of paradise that he might find another paradise in this world. But my God, Goodness, we search for that, don't we? Something that will satisfy. Something that will meet the need and bring joy and peace into our life and into our heart. God's not going to let you find that in anything but Christ. So what's the contrast? That is the futility of the old self. I moved too soon. What is the new life that we are being called to? Look in Roman, um, Ephesians four, twenty through 24 But that is not how you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self. That belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through evil desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. That first phrase there in verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. What a great phrase! He didn't say, that's not what you learned about Christ. He says, that's not the way you learned Christ. And I don't think that was an accident. And I don't believe there's another place in Scripture where that particular phrase shows up. I look, I I don't think there is. So what does it mean to learn Christ? Right before we got married, my uh, wife and I spent time with a lot of different couples whose marriages that we really admired and wanted to kind of model our marriage after. And we just asked them the hard questions and asked for advice. And more than one of the men looked at me and said, you need to become a student of your wife. And I am like, I have no idea what that means. They said, you need to learn your wife. I went, my wife and I have been friends for several years now. I, I think I know her. They said, no, you know a about her. You know that she's got two degrees from the University of Alabama, Roll Tide. You know that she was born in Mississippi. You know that she wants to be a nurse. You know a lot of information about her, but you don't know her yet. You don't know what brings her great joy yet. You don't know what breaks her heart. You don't know what makes her weep and pound on the table. You don't know her like that yet. And you need to be a student of her so that you know her like that. A couple days ago, we celebrated our 27th anniversary and I'm, I'm closer now to knowing her. I'm getting there. That's kind of along the lines of what Paul's getting at here when he says, that's not the way you learned Christ. The theologian Charles Hodge says, as the scriptures speak of preaching Christ, which does not mean merely to preach His doctrines, but to preach Christ Himself, to set Him forth as the object of supreme love and confidence. So to learn Christ does not mean merely to learn His doctrines, but to attain the knowledge of Christ as the Son of God, the Holy One of God, the Savior from sin, whom to know is holiness in life. When we know Christ like that, not just the information about Him, where He was born, where He grew up, how many years He preached... Not just the information, but when we know the heart of Christ. That is when our lives begin to be changed. That is when we can begin to walk in a manner worthy of the high calling. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. And then in verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in him." Jesus. Now when he says right there, assuming that you've heard, assuming that you were taught, he knows that they were taught. He's the one that taught them. He did go to Ephesus. He did do the teaching there. What he's saying is, you do see the contrast, right? That Jesus is the truth. He says everything right in verse 21, and the truth is in Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if we're going to know Jesus, if we are going to learn Jesus, if we are going to sit in the middle of that truth, then something in our life has to change, right? We can't sit in the middle of that truth. We can't sit in the middle of that knowledge and not be changed. So what is the change? Verse 22. To put off the old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt with its evil desires. So this idea of putting off the old self putting on the new self. The image there is of taking off and putting on clothes. When we lived at Big Oak Ranch, one of the rotating chores for the houses was the pigs. And any time the month came around where we were in charge of the pigs, I had a set of coveralls and rubber boots that were out in my shed that I went out there, I put on, I went and I did the pigs, and when I came back, I left them in the shed, taking off the coveralls, taking off the boots, leaving them in the shed, because they reeked to high heaven. And you could wash them, and you could scrub them, and you could bleach them, and you are still going to smell like a pig. And the day we moved off of Big Oak Ranch, March of 2014, we sent those clothes right to the dumpster. They could not be saved. And that is the idea that Paul says here. We've got to shed off this old self like it's pig clothes. There is no life there. There's no light there. To put off the old self which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt with evil desires, the old life, it's got to be discarded completely. It's already disintegrating around them. Romans use, uses a bit more urgent language here when it talks about the old self. Romans 6.6 6 says this, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You want a resurrected life? Everybody wants a resurrected life, Right? But if you want a resurrected life, something has to die. We don't get to the resurrection if there is not death. Your old life has to die. Now we can look at this and go, wait, wait, wait. Now, these are believers here. Uh, Haven't they already done this? And we can see the past tense in the letter that he wrote at the same time to the Colossians. Colossians 3.9 says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have... Put off the old self. Past tense. They've already done it. So what's happening here? Have the Ephesians not done that? This is the tension of the now and not yet. I have been sanctified in Christ, but I'm also being sanctified in Christ. There's something that's happened in my life but it's still something that God is still working on in my life as well. So when he says, put off the old self, basically what he's saying there is, be what you are. You're already this person, be that person. Don't you leave one foot in that world, because you cannot walk in a manner if you do. Verse 22, moving on, he says, To put off the old self which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt with its evil desires, verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. That is so crucial to living this life. And that's why in Romans twelve two, Paul says, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by what? The renewal of your mind. Same thing right there. That you may be able to discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. An outward change will not suffice because it never lasts. The change has to begin inwardly. The way we think, the way we view the world. He says "Do not be conformed, we will be transformed. There's that restoration again. Remember we talked about that. That's what he laid out in Ephesians chapter 1. That he was about the business of restoring, of, of uniting. God's building something here. And it has to start in our hearts and in our minds. Let me read 22 through 24 again. We're close to finishing here. To put off the old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt from evil desires, deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, verse 24, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We shed off the old self, the pig clothes, Not worth saving. Don't even look back when you drop them. To put on the new self. What is that new self? It's created after the likeness of God. True righteousness. Holiness. This is what we were created to be. Recreated in the image of God. Holy, righteous. And able to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. I want that. I want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. I want to be a man that's worthy of the things that I've been given by Christ. And the older I get, the more overwhelmed I am at what all He has given me. And the more I am absolutely floored by how far I still have to go. Because as long as I've been walking this walk, there's a lot of days I've still got one foot planted back in the old life. Maybe that's just me. There's days I like to straddle the fence. There's days where I really like the old life. But I know that I've been called to something else. I've been called to something higher. That I've got brothers and sisters in Christ that I need to be here for, that I need to encourage, that I need to challenge, that I've got friends that are outside the camp that need the gospel of Jesus Christ and they are watching me. And I am called to be more. And like you, I can look out at Etowah County and I can be daunted by the idea that so many of them do not know Jesus. And my calling is to them. And maybe you are as well. So join me. Let's let's take off the old self. Let's get one foot out of the world and step fully into what God has for us. I absolutely believe that the best days of 12th Street Baptist Church are ahead of us. But you and I are going to have to do the hard work of daily shedding the old self, moving forward into the new life that He has for us. We've got to be in the Word together. We've got to be growing together. We've got to be challenging one another daily to be those men and women. I'm going to pray for us. Are we going to sing? Are we singing? Let's sing a song. We're going to pray. Um, I'm going to be down here. If you need to talk to somebody, maybe you have never, ever shed off that old self. Maybe you have never stepped into a relationship with Jesus Christ, and it's time to do that today. I'll be right down here. Maybe you've done that, but you've realized, you know what, I, I still got one foot back in this world i still got work to do. If you need somebody to pray for you, we're right down here. We would love to pray with you. Let me pray for all of us right now. Father, I give you thanks. Father, for your word, for the challenge of shedding off the old life and embracing and holding on to the new life that you've given us in Christ. Father, I know that my brothers and sisters in here, they want to reflect and show this county the reign of Christ in their life. Father, there are so many things that can potentially hold us back from that. Father, And we confess those things to You now. And we lay them at Your feet, asking You to do Your work. Father, for each person in this room, I pray that You will speak to them right now in a voice they know beyond a shadow of a doubt as You. And You reveal to them exactly where they are and what they need. And that you will give them the boldness to come after it. For your honor and glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church. Feel free to share this with anyone you meet. And we pray that this sermon helps you to be more like Jesus. As 12th Street seeks to make apprentices of Jesus by being a family for family.